Welcome to the Coventry Vineyard Podcast. Wherever and whenever you're listening, we hope you're blessed by this message. If you want to find out more about our church or speak with someone about Jesus, head to coventryvineyard.org. This, this week, um, as we're going into Easter, uh, we are going to be coming to the conclusion of our series on the King and His Kingdom. And what I want to look at today is how the death of Jesus established the kingdom of God. Okay, that's a huge, huge topic. So um, I'm going to try and do that in under half an hour. Um, But um, what's interesting is each of the four gospel writers, they have a particular take when they're talking about uh, the crucifixion and then the resurrection um, three days later. And so for Mark, he focuses on the kind of the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. For Luke, he focuses on reconciliation For John, he focuses on things like redemption and victory. But for Matthew, he focuses on the fulfillment of Scripture and Jesus as King. And commenting on this, uh, Tom Wright says this. He says, Jesus' death was seen by Jesus himself and then by those who told and ultimately wrote his story as the ultimate means by which God's kingdom was established. The crucifixion was the shocking answer to the prayer that God's kingdom would come on earth as in heaven. So I want to say that right at the beginning, and we're stepping into holy ground here. So I don't know if you want to take your shoes off, that's fine. Or if you just want to, as we go through the, the, what happens on the cross, or if you just want to kind of just uh, close your eyes or whatever. But we tend to have quite a sanitized view of the cross. And I'm not going to go too much into kind of the physical details of it, but there should be something of the horror of when we survey the wondrous cross as we sung earlier and we consider what Jesus went through for us. So if you've got a Bible, you might want to turn to Matthew 27, starting in verse 27. And Matthew writes this. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. Now even here, Matthew's starting to put in hints of Jesus as, as king and it comes up again and again and again. They put a staff in his right hand, then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Now I'm just going to pause there. Now the cross was a symbol of Roman power. Now last time we met, we talked about the whole thing of power and love. We talked about Barabbas and Jesus. And the cross was really the symbol of of power. They had this Pax Romana, this piece of Rome that was extended all across the Middle East. And it basically meant this, that Rome has come and you're now under the rule and reign of Rome. And if you don't like it, then we have military might and crucifixion that we will use to keep everybody subjugated. Romans themselves spoke of crucifixion with complete horror seeing it as the cruelest and most disgusting of penalties. 
One writer, Cicero, wrote, let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from their thoughts, eyes, and ears. So he couldn't even talk about the cross in polite Roman society. In her book on the crucifixion, Fleming Rutledge says, crucifixion as a means of execution in the Roman Empire had as its express purpose the elimination of victims from consideration of the human race. There was something about it, it cannot be said too strongly, she goes on, that that was its function. It was meant to indicate to all who might be toying with subversive ideas that crucified persons were not of the same species as either the executioners or the spectators and were therefore not only expendable but also deserving of ritualized extermination. Therefore, the, the mocking and the jeering that accompanied crucifixion was not only allowed, but it was encouraged. She goes on to say, in a sense, crucifixion was a form of entertainment. Everyone understood that the specific role of the passerby was to exacerbate the dehumanization and degradation of the person. Susan Sontag says that, and she herself, she's suffered for years from um, a cancer that eventually killed her. She said, it's not suffering as such that is most deeply feared, but suffering that degrades. And commenting on this, um, Fleming Rutledge says, crucifixion was specifically designed to be the ultimate insult, insult to personal dignity, the last word in humiliating and dehumanizing treatment. Degradation was the whole point. And so when we come to think of the cross, we tend to, as I said earlier, we have to, tend to have this sanitized view of the, cross, of the cross. When we say that Jesus took upon himself the sin of the world, it means quite specifically that he suffered the shame and the degradation that human beings have inflicted on one another and that he, above all others, had nothing to merit. So just have that in your mind as we carry on through talking about the cross. In the second slide, in the second um, section, verse 32, it says, As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. So for Matthew, the cross is how Jesus is enthroned finally as king. And he goes on to write this. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. Then in the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we, we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. But he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who are crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And we just tend to forget, when we read through the story of Easter, 
I don't think we pause long enough to consider the cross and to consider that Jesus was not just a helpless victim, but he chose to go through that for us. And what, what really stands out is just how quiet Jesus is in all of this. What is also um, incredible is that none of the gospel writers really talk about the pain and the horror of the cross. Because I think most people knew about how awful it was in sort of first century compared to now. We don't really think about it. Now, there's one word to describe how God has dealt with sin and its effects throughout creation, brought creation back to his original intention. And it happens through the cross. And it's the word atonement. Scott McKnight says, it's everything and anything God does for us to make us what he wants to make us in light of who we were, who we are, and who we are meant to be. So if you like, it means at one moment, bringing everything back into right relationship with God, with ourselves, with others, and with the world. Now, the early church had to try and make sense of the cross. So how are they going to talk to other people and saying, yes, the God that we follow died the most degrading, dehumanizing death, and we now worship him? And so they were all wrestling with this. How do we talk about the cross to our friends and to our neighbors? Everyone knows how awful the cross is. How can we possibly talk about this to people? How could the Son of God die such a shaming and inhuman death? To everybody, it was absurd. Now, Paul saw the cross differently. He said that in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And to make sense of the cross, Paul, who's really a missionary, and he's contextualizing the meaning of the cross to the, the culture around him, and he uses multiple images to describe this thing called atonement. And when we think of atonement, it could be thought of like a long, strong rope. But may, rather than sort of three strands, maybe five different strands, there's probably more, um, but for the sake of today, we're just going to focus very briefly on five. And each strand itself is a metaphor to describe what Jesus achieved through his death on the cross. And so, Jesus, so Paul is trying to describe what's happening on the cross. We're going to go through these really briefly. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. So you've got the five different images of atonement on the left. And then you've got this quote by Dallas Willard. Now, you all know that he's a, he's a person I like to quote quite a lot. Uh, I was going to say he's a fan of mine, but I'm a, kind of a fan of his. Um, <laughs> says, we don't have to understand exactly how it works. Okay, now people tend to argue again and again about which one of those is most important. But Dallas says this, is anyone who thinks he or she does fully understand what theology calls the atonement undoubtedly has some surprises coming. Nowhere, I think, is theological arrogance more commonly displayed than on this subject. Now, people fall out, churches fall out, Christians fall out about which one of those is the most important. And so these five metaphors are taken from five different spheres of life. There's the legal metaphor of justification. And Paul writes that Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. And justification is to be declared right. And it's just one aspect of atonement. Secondly, you've got a commercial 
metaphor where, where Paul looks at the marketplace and it's the whole thing of redemption. In him we have redemption through his blood, Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 7 to 8. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Then in Colossians 1, 13 to 14, he says, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's paying the cost, buying us out of slavery. And the third metaphor is all about relationship. Uh, so reconciliation. Again, in Colossians 1, this is verse 19 to 20, Paul writes, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So for Paul, the failure of Jesus on the cross, the apparent foolishness of God, was actually the way in which God would reveal and destroy evil and reconcile humanity to himself. Then you've got the fourth metaphor. It's a picture of worship and of offering. That we've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once and for all. That Jesus is like the Passover lamb. He's the ultimate sacrifice. And then finally, uh, you've got this military metaphor. It's this triumph over evil, this um, ransom and rescue in Colossians 2, verse 15, Paul writes, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, as we go into this week, I would strongly encourage you to consider the cross and to consider which of those five different images means most to you at this moment. Because what Jesus deals with and what the, the the people were talking about in the early church was that it deals with the penalty of sin, but it also deals with fear and power. It also deals with honor and shame. There's so much going on. And we get to live life in the shadow of the cross. See, the cross was the final victory over the powers of sin, over the power of oppression, and ultimately of death. On the cross, Jesus identifies with us in our suffering, in our pain, and in our own death. So to extend the, the metaphor of the rope, this is what holds your boat of faith secure in the storms of life. The, the, the crucifixion, the resurrection together, that has to be the center of our faith. Now, Walter Brueggemann, in his book, uh, praying the, the Psalms describes a time in our lives when things are going really well for us. You know, it's a lovely spring day, sun's shining, everything's all, all well, all, all, all good with the world. There's a sense of peace. We know where we are, we know where things are, we know where we fit into life. Everything is as it should be and life is good. There are moments in our life that we have sense of confidence in the regularity of life and God's creation. And a number of psalms kind of express that outlook, articulating a confidence that the world is orderly due to God's wisdom built into the world at the time of creation. And many people, especially Christians, tend to live mostly in this, in this place. However, this can bring a sense of complacency. When everything is easy, 
where everything is as, as, is as it should be, then we kind of get lulled into a false sense of security. When everything is nice and lovely, and it comes as a complete shock and a surprise when we lose our balance, like I did earlier just outside, and we fall, and we lose that place of safety, and we experience pain. When, I didn't do that on purpose, by the way. <laughs> when trouble invades our life or experience loss and pain or anxiety. See, the Psalms mostly do not emerge out of places of, of happiness and when everything is all right. Rather, people are driven to poignant prayer and song as they are found in the Psalms. And it's through experiences of dislocation and relocation and disorientation. See, many of us live in the rawness of life, live in a near constant state of disorientation, where things feel dark, where things feel dislocated, moments when we become aware just of how precarious our life is. And it may be what you're experiencing right now. It may be the impact of reading the newspaper or watching the news. I was speaking with somebody just last week and they were saying, it seems crazy. We've had all this thing with, with Europe and Brexit. Then we went into the pandemic and now we've got this war in Ukraine. And it just seems like it's one thing after another. And it feels like we've had peace and safety and security for a long, long time. But then we watch the news or read the newspaper and we discover that life can be brutal and irrational. I wouldn't recommend it, but right now the number one thing on Netflix is the horror story all about Jimmy Savile. And it's all about the, the horror of, and the victimization and the, the stuff that he did to young people. And we might read that or we might watch that and think, what on earth is going on? We watch our world collapse without warning and we're pulled down into what seems like a dark, dark pit. And in this place of disorientation, there hangs a great sense of abandonment. We try to cover up our disorientation and put on a, a brave face. Or we learn to kind of stuff down our feelings and pretend that everything's actually okay. But there's a, still a profound sense of loss. And maybe you're in that place today. Maybe you're experiencing a loss of a job, a loss of a friendship. Maybe it's financial loss. Maybe it's loss of health. Maybe it's loss of sleep. Maybe it's loss of a loved one. Maybe you're sensing a loss of peace or a loss of stability or a loss of community. Maybe you're experiencing the sense that the world is falling apart around you. You're experiencing isolation and loneliness and fear. Now, right at the beginning of Matthew, he quotes Isaiah 9, stating that the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And now on this cross, the light was being extinguished. The kingdom that had burst into the lives of the disciples now being stamped out before it could truly begin. And for the first time in his life, Jesus is experiencing the absence of God. I didn't put these slides in the right order. But it says in verse 45 to 46, from noon until three in the afternoon, 
darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lema, Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, why have you forsaken me? It was not a rhetorical question. He knew why. Jesus was forsaken by God for you and for me. He was abandoned so that we would never have to be abandoned. The judgment that falls on us fell on him instead. Jesus was experiencing darkness and disorientation. He reaches to a psalm. Now, the psalm starts like that, why have you forsaken me? But it's a psalm that ends in hope. And it ends in how God will establish his dominion or his kingdom. And so different scholars say, is it that Jesus is just saying, God, you've forsaken me? Or is he also reaching out for the hope and the understanding of what he's enduring in order to establish the kingdom? And it speaks of supernatural and spiritual darkness. Now, as I've been preparing this um, the last week or so and just thinking about the cross, there's one picture that's kept coming back. And at the beginning of the year, I don't know if you saw this, but um, scientists and explorers discovered the wreck of the endurance. So it was a ship that had been um, shipwrecked. It was 107 years ago, and it sank to the bottom of the, the Weddell Sea in the Antarctic. And the person that was on this expedition, uh, Shackleton and all these other people, um, he purchased this, this, um, this ship. The, the front bow, if you're interested in this, was over a metre thick. So it could like, crush through, made of wood, crush through all the ice. And I've been coming back again and again through this whole thing called endurance. And it feels like for many of us, the last three years have been a time of profound endurance. We felt disorientated. And we've endured one thing after another. And I was praying about this and thinking about this and I was saying, why have I got the cross and why have I got this picture of the endurance in my mind? And then I came across Hebrews 12, which says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and the writer of Hebrews is saying that in in Hebrews 11, he's saying all these different people that lived by faith. And then in verse 12, he says, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I think that's the message for today. When we look at the cross, we see what Jesus endured for us. It gives us hope that whatever we are facing, whatever disorientation and darkness we're facing, there is a point of light. Now, when that ship went to the bottom... This is kind of one of the last photos that they took before it sank. Shackleton and a whole bunch of his crew, uh, I think it was 27 men altogether, they left where they were on the ice 
and they made it to, to safety eventually. Um, but it took them nearly a year. It took them a long time uh, rowing and walking across during the, the polar night in the Antarctic. They walked through darkness. Now, if you're in the Arctic and you're trying to navigate, there's something called the North Star. Now, that ship originally was called Polaris, which is the same name as the North Star. If you're in the Antarctic, if you're trying to navigate, what you navigate by is something called the Southern Cross, because you can't see Polaris in the south. And I think it was just coming back to me again and again that there is a point of light, that it's the, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection, the two go together. Tim Keller comments this, he says, in spiritual darkness, you are isolated. You are wrapped up in the things that you're living for, so you're always scared or angry or proud or driven or full of self-pity. And all of that describes some, some aspect of where you're at at the moment. It says, as a result, you become isolated from other people. See, the cross reshapes our lives. Jesus said, take up your cross. As we take up our cross, we put down the things that we want. We put down the revenge, the harsh words, the criticism, the violence, the hatred, the lies, the selfishness, the greed, and the mistrust. We die to those things in order to love God, love ourselves, love our neighbors, and love our world. See, atonement is incomplete without the resurrection. See, without the resurrection, Jesus would just have been another failed Messiah. So next week, when we come together, we celebrate the resurrection. But it's in light of the crucifixion. See, the resurrection makes it impossible for you to be in utter darkness. Even if you feel like you are in total darkness right now, See, one day you will make sense of it. There are answers. There is a purpose. And someday you will know it. See, darkness does not have the last word. And death does not have the last word. So what I'd like to do is I want to finish off with just three questions. And I want you to talk to each other about this and pray for one another. What does the death of Jesus mean to you? Do you consider his death and then how are you living today in light of the cross as you survey the wondrous cross as you look back to what he endured and what he went through how he scorned the shame and the the dehumanization of that what does that mean for you today then finally where do you need the light of the kingdom to break into the darkness where do you need new life where do you want to see resurrection? Okay, so it's a lot darker and deeper, but there is hope. And this is where we are community to one another, where we look at what is dark in our own lives and say, look, this is what I'm going through. This is what I'm enduring. This is where I'm disorientated. This is where I'm feeling dislocated. 
but I know that there is hope. I know that there is light. I know that, as Tony Campoli used to say, you know, Friday's here, but Sunday is coming. There is darkness, but Sunday is coming. There is resurrection on the way. Thanks for tuning in today. We would love to connect with you on a Sunday morning soon. Bless you and have a great week.